economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith and economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith and Economics Podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right, well, kind of building a little bit off of our rights discussion before, we thought it'd be worthwhile to explore the Constitution. I guess a little bit about what it is, but in theory and in practice. And so take it away, Dr. Clark. Okay, so... If we're going to talk about the Constitution in theory and practice, one of the things we might discuss in terms of theory is, ideally, what do people think the Constitution is there to do? What function is it supposed to perform? And why was it adopted? We often hear people, and it's usually, depending on the issue, it can be on the right or the left-hand side, declaring that, you know, certain laws are unconstitutional or that we, you know, even need to get back to what the Constitution says on a certain issue. So uh, whether or not the Constitution serves as this kind of constraint on the powers of the government would be, is, is a good conversation. And then secondly, you know, the role that the Constitution actually, I guess that's the same thing, the role that it plays. And I guess just popped to mind that the um, judicial branch, Supreme Court, ultimately was formed to try to say whether something's constitutional or not, right? That, that if, it, if it ever got challenged, ultimately it could be pushed up to there. Was that a primary function of the court or of the Supreme Court? You can correct me on my history, Justin, if I'm wrong. But if I remember correctly, the, the original way that we determined constitutionality of going up through the Supreme Court isn't actually something that was clear to everyone who wrote the Constitution would be the process. Mm-hmm. And I think there's actually a Supreme Court ruling that ruled that the Supreme Court is supreme in issues of constitutional matters. Justin, do you do you have any knowledge on that? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to thank both of you for telling me that we're going to have a podcast about the Constitution <laughs> and then 90 seconds in throwing me questions about the Supreme Court. <laughs> uh, I'll take the blame on that one. <laughs> All right, continue on. Theory and practice, Justin. Uh, Sorry for that interruption. <laughs> so it's, it's useful because when the Supreme Court does make a decision today, one of the things that they are supposed to decide is whether a law is un- unconstitutional or not, right? And there can also be disputes between the states um, that the Supreme Court has to settle today, right? I have no idea what the actual genesis of, of that is. That, yeah, maybe that would be part of its state-to-state disputes, yeah. Yeah. Ideally, that's what it's supposed to do. <clears throat> so maybe a question is, you know, in theory, even in the best of theory, does the Constitution have the authority to restrain governments in the way that it wants to? So why do we have a Constitution? Well, we have the Constitutional Convention, which was, you know, this this attempt to unite these disparate states into something like a federation or a, a bigger force. Yeah, a slightly bigger force, but not a completely centralized right. force, right? Yeah. Now, the Constitution originally was small, right? And it limited the what the federal government was permitted to do. That is primarily what the Constitution is, right? It's a set of powers 
or a statement of the set of powers that the federal government has uh, over state governments. Yeah, no, and I think the, the struggle in getting it formed was you had these autonomous states that wanted to still be really autonomous, and some of them, it was a big battle over, what was it, a 10-year period, trying to figure out if we should go with a federal system. And if we do, then it ultimately said, Let, let's make it limited. As long as it's really limited and it only handles certain things, I think defense was right at the top of the list originally since we just came out of the war with the Brits to try to get free from them that united at least in national defense. And then maybe there was other things with commerce and whatnot. Yeah, there's benefits to having some amount of centralization, right? But the none of the states wanted to give up all their power to the federal government. And so they wanted to restrict what kind of rules and dictates were going to be able to come out from Washington. And that was you know, in 1700. Um, so now we can actually today take a look back and say, well, given that that was the reason for having a constitution, how well have we done? <laughs> and so maybe that would be a, a good place to open up. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, one more thing that I'll add on top, Justin, before we get to that, uh, which I think is maybe relevant, is the unique history of the United States, the kind of state-by-state state struggles for power, but also desiring some sort of larger system that can, quote-unquote, get more done. That's the reason for our Constitution, but I, I will point out a lot of people have argued in favor of constitutions for some very functional economic reasons. And so a lot of economists now say that the path to development or countries growing rich in the first place is necessarily contingent on or totally requires the state to be able to credibly commit to not do certain things. If you don't know the limit of the state's power, you can't make certain future looking decisions, mm, which are required right. for economic growth. And so, you know, Nobel Prize winner Douglas North, a lot of his work talks about this. Uh, some other economists, Weingast is another who has this discussion that a big piece of constitutions is credibly committing not to you know, take someone's property down the line so that way they can actually invest it properly and, and that sort of thing. And so having some sort of constitution and the, the operative phrase being here that you can credibly commit to is important for economic development. And so even apart from our own history with the states and the struggles for power, there, there's even maybe a, a deeper reason why constitutions are very important for all countries to have, whether or not they have these, you know, different groups of people who want different levels of sovereignty even uh, if you just have individuals, no, you know, one federal system where there's not really states or anything like that, it still could be important to limit the, the government's power. My guess is, uh, since you've read some of the North stuff, that that might have been an accidental benefit. Like that wasn't the primary cause, but it turns out in economics, that's so important to be able to make those long-term decisions. Should I buy a, a machine or that might last 20 years and, and the president might have turned over four times over that, that um, are they going to confiscate my property next year? So I'm not going to make the investment in that land or in that machine. So I suspect that it was for other reasons, primarily yes. their autonomy. And so that was just kind of a lucky break. Yeah, that I, turned I, out. I, I absolutely agree. And I think the founders probably were aware of some of like the old arguments about rule of law and why it's important that the, you know, there be restraints and the Magna Carta, I'm sure relied on that heavily too. So I'm sure there was some intellectual tradition about the importance of limiting state government and having clear rules. But I think you're right, Russ, that the primary driver was what we talked about before I started talking 
was that the individual states kind of wanted their piece of, you know, what they can say and what they can't say. Some actors in the government wanted the government to have more power. And so the Constitution kind of came along as, we'll say, a sort of compromise between these interests. I thought of one more, too, that I think is especially relevant for our faith and economics podcast was religious freedom. It was probably near the top of the list, too, since we're coming from Europe, where there was state religion. And this also helped foster a little bit of that, having states that are independent. A lot of the states were associated, correct me if I'm wrong, with a particular denomination. And so having that autonomy and not having a a big federal government come in and tell them what their religion needs to look like or what they need to do for practicing and worshiping um, was probably near the top of the list, too, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And that would actually constitute more or be more an argument for what we want in the constitution, right? The type of rules we want in the constitution. In particular, that would be relevant to like, you know, in particular, the first amendment, right? So one of the questions we can ask too is given that the purpose of some of these rules are things like to protect religious liberty or, you know, freedom of association or, the right to unjust searches and seizures. These are all part, you know, in the first 10 amendments to the constitution, which also knows the bill of rights, right? How do those rules, how are they interpreted and how are they enforced? And there are a couple different approaches to, a couple different approaches to interpreting the constitution, which I think bear on how we evaluate its efficacy. One is something, you know, called like the living constitution, There's also like originalism or textualism. And so it might be useful to say what we think these different approaches recommend when there are disputes about what to do or what we want when it conflicts with the constitution. Yeah, so let's quickly review that. So living constitution means we can change it whenever we want and the hardcore, the originalists would be, they had a pretty good thing here to restrain government from entering our lives. Let's go buy the original books. Is that a sloppy way of defining it and things to add to that? Yeah, I would, I would say probably, you know, even if we're, let's say we're originalists and we're textualists, then we can still change it whenever we want, right? Part of the rules of the constitution are how to change the constitution. I think and um, these disputes more have to do with how we interpret the words that are written in the constitution where you know people who invoke a living constitution say that we can interpret the constitution to mean what we want it to mean mm-hmm. uh, or interpret it more broadly than those people who who want to be strict textualists or use those words with the kind of meaning that can be demonstrably uh, shown to be the case when it was written. Like who's a person was one of the original issues with the forming of our nation, right? The de- definition of who's a person. And, and so that got changed as we went, or would that be reinterpreted? I guess it still said person, but now we said, well, that includes people of all skin colors and genders and whatever, as we evolve through time. Is that correct? I th- well, I think that's maybe like a, a generous point for the to, to give to the living constitution proponents, because I think it's like maybe even deeper than that. And what I mean by that is I think that not only can we maybe reinterpret the words a little bit to fit modern meanings, 
But I, I think living constitution proponents would even say, even where there's not a clear way to interpret the words that are on the constitutional document the way that we want them to, we can still do it anyways. And so, you know, you, you gave a very logical case there of like, what we have to consider what a person is. You know, someone who's a living constitution person looking at the Second Amendment might say, well, I know that the, they intended for that clause for the purpose of building a militia or, or whatever the words are as, you know, not really being operative, but just being, you know, explaining the reasoning behind it. But I'm going to interpret it the other way because I don't like the way that it's interpreted and what, what its effect on the country is. So I think maybe it's even a little more activist than, than that example gives it credit for. Fair enough. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot to take our break. And we haven't really tackled Justin's question yet. What is it today? So I think that's where our second half will will, uh, head into. So we'll get back to you in just a bit. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have a pizza event, uh, pizza and federalism uh, discussion going on here right after this podcast today. Uh, we have a live question and answer event with Dr. Jim Gortney, one of the uh, founders of the Economic Freedom Index. Um, so that's going to be out there for even our online and other students at other campuses. And so we have a lot of things, great things going on here at the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. Okay, so we're back and we wanted to kick off on essentially what does it look like today? Are we following the constitution or have we thrown it in the trash can, I guess? So uh, Justin, you wanna kick us off with teeing things up again? Sure, so the objection to kind of what we've been saying beforehand was raised very early on by somebody named Lysander Spooner, who was, you know, he's kind of famous in the individualist anarchist literature and he, uh, he was a lawyer, and he, he wrote a book called The Constitution of No Authority. He was an, a- an early abolitionist, and uh, he had this kind of two-pronged attack on the legitimacy and practical utility of the Constitution. And it went something like this. The first attack was on the, the general legitimacy of a Constitution through time. And he said, look, if the Constitution is supposed to be an agreement between, between states, and that can only mean something like an agreement between the subjects of the states. And therefore, while it might be valid for those people who agreed to it then, it certainly isn't valid for anybody who was born under it, who follows, right? And this is kind of a general objection that you find in theories of, of liberal governments generally. Like in, it's a general objection to the social contract theory of government, right? Mm-hmm. So that's his first objection to its legitimacy, right? Which would support a living argument or just that it's totally illegitimate? He's an anarchist. Okay, so, exactly. uh, okay. you know, he's saying, he's not saying like, we should interpret it whatever way we want. Right. He's saying, you it's, know, up. it's out. Yeah, do whatever you want. Interpret, you know, interpret it however you want on your own property and good, <laughs> you don't come onto mine. Right? Right. So the second objection is what I think is a little bit more interesting. And this is this objection where he goes, look, The Constitution is supposed to be this set of restraints on what the federal government can do. And again, he's writing in 1867, right? So this is a while ago. And he goes, 
the federal government has outstripped those restrictions. It <laughs> acts in violation of those restrictions. And yet we still have this constitution, right? We just amend it however we want. We interpret it however we want. So we are left with two options. The first option is that the constitution permits the government that we currently have. Either the, and so that's the first option. He says, in that case, this constitution isn't worth very much, right? It was supposed to bind the government. It didn't. Uh, maybe it permits the government. Well, then it's not of much use to us, right? As a binding document. Mm -hmm. The second option, given that we have such a large federal government, is that the constitution was powerless to prevent the rise of the government that we have. In which case, the, the constitution isn't very effective. So our two choices are the government, the constitution permits the government that we have, in which case it's not effective, or the government can't stop, uh, that the constitution can't stop the government that we have, in which case it's not effective. And since those are our only two options, we are left in either case with this idea that the constitution is worthless, it has no authority, has no legitimate theoretical authority, and it has no practical authority either. And that's, that's a bummer, because that means that this thing that everybody thought was supposed to restrain the government can't do it in, in theory and can't do it in practice either. So that's Spooner's challenge to the, uh, the authority of the Constitution. And again, this was written in 1867. The federal government has only grown vastly bigger since then. I mean, so um, right after the Civil War, 1867. Yeah, right in that era, right? Lincoln, uh, Lincoln era. And, and, you know, post-New Deal, the federal government yeah. grew exponentially That's larger than anything stick, yeah. Spooner could have imagined. This was before, right. those, uh, you know, this was before egregious interpretations of things like the, Commer uh, the Commerce Clause. So I'm going to shut up for a second. Yeah, I, uh, I think that, like, this is a pretty strong argument. Uh, because oftentimes we'll, we'll, we'll hear politicians and mostly conservative politicians nowadays uh, sort of uh, point out, well, what is going on right now is unconstitutional. Uh, and sometimes this will come for even like libertarians. So I think Ron Paul said the word constitution a million times in his campaign, uh, talking about like, for example, foreign wars that aren't declared by Congress, but just sort of like enacted by the president. Mm -hmm. And the, the unfortunate reality, and I think Spooner is correct on this to a certain extent, is that well, either the wars that were in overseas aren't unconstitutional and they are constitutional, or the Constitution can actually prevent us from going into the wars, in which case, you know, it doesn't really, you know, saying, well, let's get back to the Constitution. It, it's, it kind of rings hollow because uh, it's not, not self-enforcing. And this actually gets to uh, what I was talking about earlier in some of the, the economics literature about development. One of the big problems with constitutions is you have to be able to credibly commit to uh, you know, tying yourself to some sort of constitution. And it's not super clear and people haven't really thought of a way to do that consistently. Like how can the person who has the monopoly over enforcement of rules be expected to enforce a rule over themselves in the future that they might not want to enforce? There's just not a clear way. And I think this is what Spooner is, is hinting at is like the document itself can't jump off the paper and bind politicians hands. And so, you know, if politicians aren't really interested in the Constitution, it just won't be, you know, sort of effectively uh, used in, in the world. And so I, I think this is a, a legitimate and kind of an unsurprising reality that we that politicians don't listen to the Constitution or that it, you know, permits all these things. I'd just add that he's probably right, but the benefit might have been that it slowed 
the growth of government. So I'm thinking from a cultural standpoint, through the 1800s, you had this idea of freedom and individual freedoms, and that percolated into elected officials. And so some of them were freedom-minded, some of them were more big government-minded. My point is that the evolution over the last 200 years has, that's probably helped to slow things down. I think it fostered a culture that slowed the growth of government down. But now this is eroding, I think, pretty clearly in the 21st century. I mean, everything I start to see has been collective and you owe it to the greater good. And you, yeah, it's just, I think that our culture is eroding. And then therefore, the elected officials that go into office are going to have an easier and easier time of coming up with a new, a new rule, a new infringement that is more and more not being restrained. Yeah, so we can take like, you know, pick whatever your favorite amendment is or your favorite egregious interpretation of a part of the Constitution. And what, if you look at the Second Amendment, right, which reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right to the, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, right? Mm -hmm. The last part of that sentence is extremely clear. It just says shall not be <laughs> shall infringed, not. right? If you took this amendment uh, literally, as a letter of the law, there would be no current gun law on the books, which would be constitutional. Right. And yet we are awash in gun laws, right? Yeah, it's practically impossible to own. Well, not, not impossible, but it's, it's prohibitively expensive to go through the process to own a gun in a lot of places, New York, D.C., a lot of these places. There's like a de facto ban on guns, really. Yeah. Now, this has actually gotten a little better over the past 30 years with the carry laws in states have gotten a lot more permissive. You know, in Kansas, where we are now, you don't need a, a concealed carry permit. You can just carry concealed. Yeah, without um, ever having anything. That yeah, surprised yeah. me when that law passed a little bit, but I was like, wow, okay. And it's like that in, in actually quite a few. You can look at the development of gun laws over the past 30 years as, you know, state by state, and almost none of them go in the opposite direction that Kansas has gone. You have a lot of states that went from may issue to shall issue, which means that going from uh, the government can give you a permit if you ask correctly to the government has to has give you a to. permit if you ask correctly. Mm. And a lot of the states went from uh, has to give you a permit if you ask correctly to you don't need a permit anymore, um, which okay, that's uh, interesting which is good news if, like me, you like the Second Amendment. But the point is that it seems like we have a bunch of laws on the books which flatly contradict this, the obvious uh, intent of, of the law. And then we have these stretched interpretations of the law, like the interpretation of the com Commerce Clause, right? Where people have argued that a farmer growing wheat on their own property which wouldn't ever leave their property since that affects or has a potential effect on interstate commerce that can be regulated mm -hmm. or growing marijuana on your own property uh, for your own consumption can be regulated due to the interstate commerce clause when you aren't even trying to sell that marijuana to anybody in Maryland or whatever. Right. So, uh, you know, whatever you think about marijuana uh, substitute, whatever you want there. Look, if, if you can regulate something that you're doing that you grow and consume in your own house, on this view that, well, it might have an effect on an interstate, on an interstate market. There is nothing you can't uh, regulate. Yeah, li literally nothing. It's an, it's an amazing, we'll say interpretation that might even be that, that word used loosely, <laughs> judicial activist interpretation of the constitution, which 
either again to back to Spooner's point, which is where the convincing component of that come from. It's it's either been permitted or it was allowed in the first place. Or, or sorry, uh, it's either permitted or and been powerless to, or been powerless to stop. Excuse me. And yeah, Justin's right. Literally anything to plug some economics in here. I mean, turning on your television at home could affect commerce because that's a substitute. I mean, everything is a substitute for everything. Something else. So I, you know, there's literally no behavior which can't affect commerce. (laughs) You know, except maybe just sitting doing nothing, and even that you could make an argument. Uh, So it is an uh, amazing, again, lightly used to the word using the word interpretation of the Constitution. Real quickly, can I just say that that was actually what Clarence Thomas said in his dissent on the marijuana case issue, Yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and Clarence Thomas is usually considered this, you know, right-wing conservative judge, right? But he was saying you ought not, the federal government ought not to be able to regulate marijuana in this case because it was unconstitutional. Now, we say he said it in his dissent because, of course, he lost, he right? Lost, yeah. uh, they, the Supreme Court decided the majority against him. Well, I'm glad you brought up Judge Thomas because uh, that's what I was wondering is, Right now, with the recent appointees of, of Trump, we have a number of originalists on the Supreme Court. Is it possible that the commerce thing could be overthrown? I mean, I, I'm just wondering what the, what, what the process would be for that to even be considered. No, uh, that's, that's, my, that's my thought. And part of the problem is... Power begins power. Part, part of the issue isn't that the, these people necessarily, you know, if we threw... Clarence Thomas or, you know, one of the current, you know, the recent appointees yeah, back on. back to the time of the Commerce Clause decision, they might have voted in, a, in accordance with uh, Thomas on this. Or, you know, way back to when the, the Commerce Clause started be, to be misinterpreted in the first place, they might have voted um, in a way that upheld the original thinking of the Constitution. But a lot of the people who tend to be originalists also are willing to yield to previous precedents. And so there's no like judicial reverse activism or anything like that. I I think there's there's no judicial reactionaryism trying to reverse things. Mostly uh, judicial precedent is accepted of what, you know, so whether or not uh, Scalia agreed with things or not, sometimes he would accept previous case decisions and just not go back into them and use them for future case decisions. So so there's really no reverse activism going on. Yeah, I, I mean, Adrian Vermeule couldn't get appointed to the Supreme Court, right? He's the guy at Harvard who's uh, a pretty reactionary uh, law professor. Um, okay. Uh, but uh, I think your point on precedent is exactly correct. That question comes up in every uh, in every case where they're trying to confirm Supreme Court justices, right? Will, will you yield to precedent? And you can't get through committee unless you say yes, right? Given that that uh, precedent was already uh, set, that this is a correct uh, or a permissible interpretation of the Constitution's it's very hard to go back. So you're telling me the best we can hope for is additional slowing, as I put it, of gravitation to more and more and, government. And to go back to that, Russ, I actually think, um, you know, I'm not a full-on Spooner person. And the reason I'm, I, I think Spooner has a good point that a lot of conservatives should take to heart in their strategizing is that you can't just say it's unconstitutional because clearly that doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I will say that, like, you know, the operative part of uh, Spooner's argument is like, he says, pick any constitutional abuse. But the thing is, there are actually a lot of constitutional abuses that haven't actually happened yet. And I, I don't think that that is, you know, a, a coincidence. For example, if we had, a, if, the, if the Democrats uh, in charge, if what's his name down in Texas, Beto O'Rourke had a, a button that he could push to remove the Second Amendment, I think he would push the button. And I think that that would lead to some laws being passed that weren't passed before. 
What does that tell me? That tells me that the Second Amendment is actually effective. Maybe not as much as the Second Amendment says. Maybe not, you know, the to the what the wording says. There shall be no law, uh, but it certainly has some effect on the world. Otherwise, we wouldn't hear, uh, you know, people on the side, uh, you know, whether it's uh, on the left to get trying to promote gun control laws or on the right trying to declare wars in other countries without congressional approval. You know, we wouldn't hear those people complain about the Constitution if it didn't have some impact on their ability to, you know, outstretch the government. So I think you're right, Russ. I think there is like a slowing effect of the Constitution. Yeah. And I think if popular opinion was 90 percent that we should ban all guns, we would probably throw the Constitution out the window. We wouldn't we wouldn't look to the Constitution for guidance. We'd just say, oh, yeah, that's a stupid amendment from the old days. We need to we need to get rid of that. Obviously, guns are dangerous. 90% of public popular opinion is that. And boom, once again, showing the ineffectiveness of the Constitution. Yeah. And I, one of the things that I think I, I would want to say, I really like what you just said about this idea of using the Constitution for guidance. And I think that that is where I differ with Spooner. And this is, I think, related to uh, what Peter was saying earlier, too. Uh, you know, Spooner's claim is we should, you know, throw it out, right? It's not doing any good throw it out because it's not doing the thing which we want it to do. I think a better way to look at the Constitution is something like that it's an aspirational document, meaning, look, this is kind of like what we ideally want our government to be like. And when we notice that our government diverges significantly from its aspirational source, that should make us worry a a little bit, Mm -hmm. right? But Uh, Since we know that it is a government document that can only be interpreted and enforced by the government, we ought not to also be surprised when that same government grants itself the ability to, uh, you know, skate those rules. In the type of government we have, the supposed check on that is like when elected representatives do things that we don't want, we can vote them out of office or whatever, right? Uh, Now, you might say that that might not work either. Well, fine. But if that's the case, then maybe what Spooner is demanding of uh, the Constitution isn't even what the Constitution was really there to be doing anyway, right? Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then maybe we have a case for not throwing it out if it's supposed to be an aspirational document, Mm -hmm. right? And so, I mean, one can imagine, you know, Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments, right? The thou shalt not kill, uh, you know, and some BC Spooner going, this idiot comes down with these commandments. Like people are still killing. It's either, uh, you know, it's powerless to, to prevent people from killing, throw them out. Right. And uh, you might think, well, that's, that's not really the point of the 10 commandments. Weren't there to actually make sure that nobody ever got killed. Right. And I think something like that might be a better way to look at um, the constitution. Uh, you can be worried that our government is, uh, wildly diverging from it, but the fact that it's diverging from it might not mean that it ought to therefore be jettisoned. Yeah, I think without it, we would move faster is with my whole slowing argument is that I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I, I think that what you said earlier with the 90%, I, th- I think is, is true. Uh, that if like 90% of people think the thou shalt not kill, you know, phrase in the Ten Commandments is like, a, like not something we need to worry about, well, then it, it won't have much effect. But, you know, even if the majority of people, like 51% say, oh, this these Ten Commandments aren't really binding, I still actually think that like the authority of the Ten Commandments themselves, or in the case of the Constitution, the authority of the Constitution of, of itself does have some impact on the conversation. I think if we just had democracy to, to deciding what gun laws were right now, uh, they would be a lot more restrictive in some places mm-hmm. than they are. 
And so the Constitution, at the very least, both an aspirational document, I agree. And I also think it's sort of a, a tool in a belt of things that actually do have some ability to slow down the growth of government. Not always and everywhere. It's not going to be, it's not like, you know, uh, you can pull out the Constitution when you're the only person trying to uphold the Constitution and use it in your defense. That's not going to work. But maybe if you're in like a slight minority, uh, it, it has enough sway to sort of force people to listen to what you have to say. It's a little bit more of a long-term stabilizer because otherwise, like you say, 55% wins, law changes. Mm -hmm. And then next year, they're like, oh, that didn't work out so good. Let's get the other people in office, law changes. And so now you've got laws, if, if it was a close majority, uh, potentially flipping around on us, causing more volatility. The document at least gives us this thing to look at and hopefully slow down before the next regime changes it on us. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't, I, I don't think we'll have time today to get to Spooner's other arguments about uh, the constitutions and generations having different goals, but I, I think we've pretty well tackled the, the discussion on the second one. All right. Well, if that is the last word, we'll let Peter have it. This has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. We'd like to thank you all for listening. Be sure to hit us up with a five-star rating that helps other people find our podcast or just pass it along to your friends on social media and emails. Thank you all for listening and be fruitful multiply. Thanks. <laughs>